0: Our guest presenter this Sunday morning is David Lurse, and he cracked in the hour with an extraordinary Bob Dylan track. And uh, we are talking about what it means to be an activist uh, and a citizen, I suppose, in society who speaks truth to power. You know, David, there's so many things that have come up with what you've said. The one that kind of clicked in my head was why you didn't choose, for example, then to become a journalist if you wanted to speak to the public. And the second is something around having an institution behind one that is a just institution in order to speak to the public i mean uh, for example i think it's much easier perhaps to to speak to the public when you have the support of an institution as to p- opposed for example if you are a whistleblower so lots yes, of questions I mean, what- there let's tr- why not a journalist and the power of the institution in order to uh, ensure that you are able to speak out?
1: I mean, you know, in part, I suppose I have been a bit of a barefoot kind of journalist in a way. <laughs> I mean, I've, I've, I've written a lot for newspapers. I enjoy writing that. I'm still doing that. I think journalists and the media have been incredibly, have been central to my conception as I, as I try to outline what it is to be a social activist. So you know really I, I can't answer the question why not a journalist except that I, I suppose I enjoy working yeah. on the ground more often and I am a, a, a bit of a journalist I mean many <laughs> journalists would deny that but um, but I think that i I am a bit of a journalist because I think that uh, I think that without the media without a free media uh, it would have been you know that much more difficult to Raise these public interest concerns, and it's something that that made me, you know, I guess more suited to open above the ground activity than to underground activity. I mean, I, I, uh, you know, chose the one area of overground of above ground activity that, you know, enabled me, even though it was it was only if you like semi legal, to. Um, to speak to the public, and mm. I started doing that in trade union in trade union work. So, so yeah, I am a, I am a bit of a, a, a journalist.
0: You know, David, we um, spoke about uh, the institutions that you formed. I mentioned them earlier, and I read in an article that you're an expert in social startups, which goes back to my question of having the power of an institution behind you which i'm assuming is that you recognize where the need lies behind and then you have the ability to draw in all sorts of people to build an institution around you how did that happen with um, corruption watch
1: well i mean the you know it's difficult to make this short but, <laughs> but you know basically i came out of uh, competition the competition tribunal when my term ended very unhappy to be out of the competition tribunal i love that work And I went to Gibbs for a while, and I worked on a book there. And then, um, as well as Zimus Vavi, actually approached a number of his old uh, uh, Union comrades and asked us to help him deal with some of the uh, whistleblowing about corruption that was being brought to his attention. And it was a period in which there was a growing awareness of burgeoning corruption in the in the in the country and so when uh when we came together and we decided very quickly that the only way to deal with this was to set up an institution that would focus on combating it i you know grabbed the opportunity with both hands and and uh you know worked in the organization and how and helped set it up uh and i am i have been successful in setting up new institutions i'm a terrible manager so once it gets too complicated managerially (laughs) i tend to find a new one but um but i'm better at starting institutions than i am at, at managing them and you know looking at job performance and all of those kind of things which one has to do but are not my thing really so, so my, my, my thing, if I have a thing, is, is, is setting up new institutions. And you know, in the case of, well, the union, the competition tribunal, the research unit at WITS, and then Corruption Watch, I have generally been involved at the beginning of the life of the institution that I've ultimately come to work with full, full time. And then, uh, you know, retooled myself every 10 years <laughs> when uh, the management tasks became a little bit too complicated for me.
0: <laughs> he's a better founder than he is a manager. David yeah. Lewis is our guest today. Uh, he's the former executive uh, director of Corruption Watch. He has a background in trade unions, academia, author, policymaker, and much, much more. David, you we, you you talked about Corruption Watch and whistleblowers. And, and And I would like to just briefly go back to my last question, which is the the protection, for example, of whistleblowers and the institutions that are able to do that or not able to do that. I mean, ultimately um, Corruption Watch was one of lobbying and advocacy as opposed to just investigation. How does one protect an individual? I mean, if I'm going to say, all right, I'm gonna blow the whistle on certain things, for example, at the SABC, I'm, what, what would protect me? And we've seen, heard and seen and read Horrific stories about that yeah. in this country—truly horrific stories.
1: Look, I mean, there are there is some legislation that protects people. I mean, particularly if you blow the whistle on your employer, that the employer is is prohibited from from discriminating against you in your employment condition. But they're not the most important forms of protection. I mean, usually, what or, or always what we promise in Corruption Watch we will do. Is uh, not reveal the name of the whistleblower unless the whistleblower expressly gives uh, gives permission for that. Yeah. But but very but very often the best way of protecting a whistleblower is to do exactly the opposite. It's to be uh, particularly if you blow the whistle on on important issues, um, big issues, mm. is to be as above ground as you possibly can be, and to uh, and to effectively ask for the protection of the public. And uh, not many people believe that, and, and, and they're entitled not to. They're entitled to insist on, on absolute uh, uh, privacy, which they're granted and should be granted. But, you know, very often it's to have a high profile rather than a low profile that protects a whistleblower. Because I think in the end, whistleblowers are best protected if they're considered to be heroes, uh, rather than if they're considered to be impimpies wor- at worst or shadowy characters at, at, uh, at best. So, you know, there are, there are various ways of, of doing that, but none of them are, are absolutely foolproof. You mm. know, in the end, being a whistleblower involves a commitment to the public. It, it, it really does and it involves courage and and bravery and, and fortunately there've been a lot of people who have who have found it in themselves to to evidence their courage and uh, and fortitude and blow the whistle and some have suffered enormous consequences including as we well know assassination
0: mm. you know um, you you talk about these people that find incredible courage in themselves and every weekend on the show we talk to people who are finding courage to do so many different things. And we forget that without wanting to sound pollyanna but we forget how powerful we are as individuals and as citizens of this country. And I imagine that you meet people and have over many, many years, met people like that all the time.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, that was a, a, a constant of, of corruption. Watch, it was a little of... Uh, of the competition tribunal as mm. well and it certainly was the case with the unions you know yeah. when i when i think of you know that those two or three people who would come from a huge factory to see you and 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 uh, ask to be uh, to be organized and knowing that they would have to reveal themselves as it were to their employers to their fellow workers and knowing how how dangerous that was and how many of them paid a very, very heavy price for doing that. Yeah. Um, much heavier than, obviously, than union people do today. But, um, uh, you know, that's where where I really saw the courage of, of very ordinary people who had nothing but their, if you like, integrity and their determination to do better for themselves. And their fellow workers that Mm. that was really inspiring. I mean, I I think it certainly inspired me to continue doing this kind of work.
0: David, uh, we talked about that mind map. We spoke about activism. We mentioned the word corruption. I've seen some interesting conversations with you where you do talk about the issue of corruption often in this country we look at it as, as something with a capital c you know corruption but actually this mm. is this is a thread that goes back and is woven not just in this country um you know it, it can go to many other countries all around the world i mean in the west the north the south it it's not it's not something that is actually unusual
1: no not not at all it's probably the the most uh, common Problem in 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 governance and and has 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 really risen in 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 public consciousness and in the consciousness of of political leaders in the in the in the last uh, while. It is an absolutely uh, common problem, and and South Africa has it badly. I mean, there's no question about it that we have a we have a we have a big Capital we have a big C. corruption <laughs> problem, and and they not only. But they're not only the capital C corruption issues. You know, they, you know, one of the things that Corruption Watch that we did and was the centerpiece of our, of our strategy in a sense was asking the public to report experiences of corruption to us, and they're very often about the person who gets shunted out of the out of the housing allocation queue because she won't pay a bribe, or, or uh, you know, is harassed by a traffic cop early in the morning. These are considered cases, I think, wrongly considered cases of, of petty corruption. And you never see about them, you know, in the, in the pages of the newspapers or even on radio, quite honestly, although more on radio. But those are the kind of conditions that people in everyday life face. Every engagement with a public service is, is, a, is a case of corruption. And mm. it Creates very generates very low levels of trust in government. It's expensive for, you know, individual targets of 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 corruption, and it's manifestly unfair, which 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 makes people very angry and sometimes very obsessed with their with their issue. And I mm. can kind of understand why.
0: Yeah. Your first guest is someone from Corruption Watch, Mashudu Masuta. Uh, legal researcher. Why have you chosen Mashuda as your first guest? Well,
1: Mashuda is a really, really, really special person. I mean, I should sort of declare up front that I'm a fully paid-up member of her, of her fan club. In a way, <laughs> I mean, she, she, she joined Corruption Watch straight out of uh, out of university as an intern, and I, th- I think that was about. Five years ago, if she might may correct me by a year or two, and um, and very shortly after joining us as an intern, she was de- she had developed her own kind of program focusing on the mi- on the mining sector, and um, before long was leading what was one of the largest projects in, in Corruption Watch and one of the most complex projects and and she's a person of extraordinary confidence and I, and by that i don't mean a, a sort of brash and and uh, and precocious confidence i just mean like a comfort in her own skin that makes mm. her that makes her as at ease in a minister's boardroom or a corporate ceo's uh, suite as it does with traditional leaders in the northwest or indeed sitting under a tree in a Impoverished mining community in the northwest, talking to uh, uh mine miners and their families in those uh, communities. So, she, and she's she's set up an incredibly successful mining project. She's just left Corruption Watch to work in an in a in a organisation that focuses in mining. But I've always wanted to know, and it'll be my first question to her where she where she acquired this sense of comfort she's also (laughs) absolutely no nerd she was always the the life and soul of every party that corruption watch had which we did occasionally so she's always just fascinated me and i've always just really loved her i guess because of the kind of person she is
0: mashudu masuta is on the line we thank you so much for joining us mashudu hi mashudu you are there Yes, I can hear you. Can you hear me all right? Yes, we can hear you. There was a That was a, a glowing, glowing report back on you for sure, and I hope you heard that as <laughs> <laughs> well. Michouda, my apologies. I said that you were currently working for Corruption Watch, but um, as David has clarified, you've moved on now. And uh, l- let's go to that first question of David. What makes you comfortable in all spaces, and there's a great learning in something like that, as you say, as David said, someone who can talk to to government, but who can also talk to the private sector, that can talk to community, and uh, civil society. That's a skill. It's a skill and a half for sure. Yes, yes. Um, um,
2: thank you. Thank you very much. Um, I I don't quite know. I think um, I've never really thought of it in in that way. Um, I think. You know, from for the work itself, a, a huge credit needs to go to David, um, because there was a lot of um, trust that he placed in me, um, and uh, you know, he, he's David Lewis. <laughs> so when David um, gives you all that trust and the and, and a lot of the opportunities to really find a way of. Um, um, um you know learning more, getting the experience and you you put it on yourself to try and repay that trust by performing and by really trying to 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 lead um the the projects as much as 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 best as you can um so I think a large part of it was the fact that I knew that um I had David's support I had his trust um I knew that he he saw. We had a similar vision insofar as what the mining work could do for Corruption Watch, um, insofar as it being a, a key part of of the organisation moving forward. So I think there was there was a, I think a large part of it was really knowing that he had I had his trust and 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 he was really supporting and that really provided a lot of comfort and a lot of confidence going into those kinds of um, situations and meetings and so on.
0: Mashouda Musuta is uh, David Lewis' guest. Uh, I want to ask both of you to take a breath. We're just going to break, and when we come back, we continue. Michelle Constant on SAFM. You are with SAFM. Our guest presenter is David Lewis. He's joined us uh, on Zoom. His first guest is Mashudu Masuta, working in the mining environment, a qualified lawyer with a commercial law background and focusing on the extractive industry as well. David, I know that you've got plenty of questions for Mashudu because you're just able to come up with him as a barefoot journalist, as you told us. Yeah, I mean, Mash m- the, the 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 aspect of
1: your work that made me m- most proud and that I think was most important for for Corruption Watch was your um, was the central role that you gave to mining communities. You you were in a policy advocacy and policy research role, but you never uh, uh, restricted that to speaking with other policy makers, be it in government or in the private sector you did that but your your route was with the mining communities and and nobody you know instructed you to do to do that um that's how you conceived the 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 role and i i've always wanted to ask you is that what is it about these communities that that places them front and center of your of your thinking and your work and and of your concerns, mm. you know—is it your family background? Is it was it some teacher? Was it some early connection with these really impoverished, discriminated against communities? What was it that drew you there?
2: Mm. Yeah, um, yeah. I think um, part part of it is my family background. Um, Uh, My parents were really big on ensuring that everybody's involved, everybody has a seat at the table, um, everyone's voice is heard. And one of the big issues that comes up when you're working in the mining sector is exactly that, where communities feel that they are not heard, Mm. um, that rules um, and policies that are put in place are not designed for them. Um, and I think once you go into some of the the research material and the work and start to understand the commodities the value of the commodities um the revenues of of your multinationals um and then you hear from communities their daily struggles and you see their daily struggles there's massive disconnect um with that it, it's um you have extraordinary wealth on one end and extraordinary poverty on the other. Mm. And you, the only way in which you can try um, and ensure that there's, there's some level of shared prosperity or um, at least an understanding of what is going to um, get the community to a better position um, is having conversations and having engagements. And I must say, I think, having the engagements with communities are probably one of the most, you you really hear one of the most fascinating stories, and um, you can can really put yourself um, squarely in their position. You can see whether yourself or an aunt or an uncle um, that really just wants their voice to be heard, that their struggles are understood, Mm. um, that laws and policies are, are designed for them. Um, so it, it really it really became um, something of a foundation aspect in trying to move the projects forward because we want to ensure that um, the the communities are in a better position. We want impact for the communities. we want a situation where, you know, at the end of project, they can say, well, we were here and now we're in a better position.
0: Mr. Um, you know, if you don't mind, I'd like to ask you and David a question around this because you talk mm. about moving the project forward. And obviously, all the work that both of you do and have done over the years is around um, creating, I'll call it positive outcomes. The challenge, of course, is that one has to address that with respect. And I'm wondering in the journey, in order to achieve a positive outcome or not, the, I'm sure that there must be sometimes levels of antagonism uh, and and anger within communities, within public sector, within private sector. And I'm wondering, how do you deal with that? Um, mm. Because that's mm. dealing with... I suppose, trying to find a common ground with someone that you may not have any common ground with whatsoever. And, Masuda, I'll, I'll start with you. What, what, How did you deal with that?
2: Mm. And that's a really good question. I think, um, w- at least in the mining um, industry, the, the approach of these projects is uh, about transparency, yeah. right, and accountability. So that's a common... Uh, Ground for everybody. Everybody wants transparency. Everybody wants accountability. um, And you want a way in which you can move forward with that in mind. So once you apply that lens to all stakeholders, it becomes an easier conversation. (laughs) Um, And I think there's there's also a pragmatism that needs to be applied in certain situations. Um, And most of the time it's easy to to explain um, an approach that is pragmatic with the idea that the end goal is that you're going to try and have a collaborative mm. um, approach to ensuring that this very rich, very lucrative industry is beneficial for everybody. So when there's um, problems between a mining community and a mining company, um, most of these Um, Issues or issues that can be resolved if there's just a better collaboration around um, specific issues. Um, And, you know, once you apply a similar lens of of transparency and accountability, then it it really does help um, getting the the, the conversation flowing. It's not always easy, and it just takes some time, um, you know, to build that trust, um, particularly in communities where they've been housing operations for many years. Um, but it, it does take some time. But I think when you have this similar common ground and the same end in mind, then um, you do get there at some point.
0: David, the two words that stand out, obviously transparency and pragmatism, in order to lead to collaboration. <laughs> what would you say in uh, your years of experience as well uh, in the spaces that you've worked
1: yeah, I mean, I think that that what Mashudi says is absolutely is absolutely right, and and you know her way of of tackling difficult customers and difficult interest groups mm. is uh, is uh, never to raise her voice, is to always appear to be reasonable, to be charming, to lower the temperature. My approach tends to be to uh, raise the temperature, rather than, rather than to higher the temperature. So, so we're, a, we're a good combination, in a sense. I mean, it's sort of good cop, bad cop. But, um, but uh, yeah, there are different ways of dealing with it. But an essential way of dealing with it is to be able to see the opportunities for some vastly different interest groups to act in a manner that serves the interests of the other. Or that at least recognises the legitimate interests of the other, and you know the interests are not always legitimate. I mean, yeah. you know, quite frankly, the interests of some of, particularly the rogue mining companies, are not uh, uh, are not legitimate, and they've got to be persuaded of that. And you know, often at that stage, it's about raising the temperature rather than lowering the temperature. <laughs> but inevitably, there's always a stage at which. You need to you need to have a conversation in a normal tone of voice uh, that that addresses the concerns of all of the parties that you're engaging with, and Mushir was hell of a,
0: a good at that. And you know I had my own sort of role to play uh, as well. Raising the temperature, lowering the temperature. Our guest presenter is David Lewis. His guest uh, is none other than uh, Mashudu Masuta. We're going to leave Mashuda at this point because we need to go to a second guest, but first we'll go to a break. <laughs> We're chatting to David Lewis, uh, getting some technical stuff sorted out here because his second guest was shifting, shifting gears completely, David, um, from a uh, legal researcher and the extractive mining world to novelist Ivan Vladislavich, yeah. <laughs> how, why?
1: Well, you know, I suppose even political activists read novels, and <laughs> like novels, and on occasion, Ivan's uh, Ivan's a friend and um, and somebody that I, I I'm getting to know um, reasonably well and whose work I've always admired and and. Um, and i'm always puzzled by how you know somebody who writes quite a lot i'm always puzzled how how people become novelists because uh, i i couldn't imagine myself being one although although, in the, although my, my wife i suppose is one yes. and um, uh, so i i wanted to ask ivan how a boy from the east rand becomes uh, you know, a a world-class novelist, you know, what is it that that set him on this very unusual career path? Because, you know, I think although Ivan will deny it, I mean, he's he's modest to the point of being self-effacing, is that, you know, when when, uh, South Africa's next uh, Booker Prize is won or even Nobel Prize is won for literature, Ivan's going to be, you know, in in at the front of the line (laughs) so i want to know how this happened
0: ivan we've got you on the line we hope uh, that zoom call is all okay are you with us um
3: i'm here i can hear you
0: that's absolutely brilliant to hear ivan the question goes to you. what makes a novelist i suppose one could say that that you are constantly pulling these extraordinary threads together of stories and narratives that take place in our country but also globally as well (laughs) and in our minds
3: um, hi. Yes. Hello, David. Um, hi, Simon. Nice to be talking to you. Um, well, I do. I think that um, in some ways, writing is a vocation. Mm. Um, uh, in I, many of the good writers I know, wanted to write from a young age, and that was, that was certainly the case with me. I was drawn to to writing and excited by the idea of kind of putting words together, even when I when I was a schoolboy, when I was mm. a, a primary school boy. So. I think I think that's that's where it starts a kind of attraction to to sto- to stories and to language, um, and then it and then it um, requires it requires a lot of hard work I suppose and some luck. You have to meet the right people along the way, and you you have to work very hard, work regularly, and at some point, the writing becomes very much um, I suppose a part of your way of being in the world. Hmm. And, and then there's no going back. <laughs> Do you-
0: no,
3: I, I have to I, I have to correct you on one school, David. I'm not an Eastern boy.
0: <laughs> I was
3: actually b- born and raised in Pretoria. In Pretoria. I have a ever- I have a even strong worse. connection. Yeah, I, no, even better. I, I have yeah. a I have a strong connection with the East Rand because my parents um, moved to Springs when I was uh, uh, around twenty or so, and so I, I know Springs and the East Rand very well. But actually, I spent my childhood in Pretoria. Yeah.
0: So, uh, David, I'll i yeah, I'll yeah. to you, David.
1: Yeah, you you know, I, I mean, i I've, I've wanted to ask you. I mean, I principally read non-fiction. And, and in the last 30 years, there's been a huge uh, um, outpouring of South African non-fiction uh, writing. I mean, not all of it is fantastic writing, but all of it tells interesting stories. But I, I, I wanted to ask you what your assessment was of the state of fiction in South Africa. Hmm. And, 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 and while on that point, you know, to tell us what are the bright lines between if there are any between fiction and non-fiction, I mean, I often get the idea that there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of uh, a truth in fiction, as it were, yes. and there's a lot of uh, imagination in in non-fiction. So, are there bright lines? But I think first to tell us what you think of the of the state of fiction writing in South Africa.
3: Hmm. Well, I, I think that in in general, David, you there has been a shift um, towards uh, nonfiction in recent years um, in the, in the writing world, in the literary world. Um, I think some people say that that's always been the preference of South African readers, that if you look at the, the really popular books over, over decades, there's always been a taste for nonfiction. Um, I think in, in the last few years, um, I know that the sales of literary books have been in decline. Um, for for five or six years or longer, um, although uh, I I hear on the publishing grapevine that things have ticked up just in the last year, so hmm. that people may be going back to fiction. And you know, I think the reasons for that are really complex. I think we we live in we live in a society that is so full of full of um, immediate uh, concerns, immediate problems, and and dramatic events, as as you know from from your, your own work. And I think that people have a real need to understand those those things um, uh, right now. They want to read. They want to read books that reflect those problems around them in a fairly direct way. So, so I think that's one of the appeals of the books think, that delve think, into the ki- kind of um, issues that you're talking about.
0: But do you think? I mean, Ivan, I think it's interesting, and I'm, I'm I love this. You know, it's something we talk about a lot here on the show: is the idea of like nonfiction and fiction. Sometimes I feel like through fiction one can actually get to the truth in a way that is so different but so powerful and so correct. I mean, I'm thinking just of that book To Paradise by Hanya uh, Yanagihara, which is this extraordinary book about the past, the present, and the future, you know, looking at pandemics and epi- epidemics. And it's it's dystopia and it's it's real fiction. I mean, it's, it's, it's dystopic fiction, but it nails it to the flagpole in a way that... I would not be able to see it in, in, in nonfiction, if that makes sense.
3: Oh, totally. I mean, that's that is the great argument for for the the role of fiction is that it that it gets to the truth of kind of human human affairs, if you like, in a in a different way, um, and that the fiction writer has the freedom to invent in ways that actually get get the reader um, closer to the truth of a situation so and i think people do read for that i mean it's, i think there is so there's clearly still a place for that it's why i continue to read and indeed to, to write novels i think yeah. that the novel gives you access to things that you you can't get in a more journalistic um, um text yeah but i think that you to you also need you need time and attention to to read books that work in that more layered way right there's yeah if you if you especially if you look at fiction which operates in a more kind of literary space that's not so much driven by story and that that that's dealing with ideas or working the way the structure of the book is not um that compelling and something you might have to wrestle with or something you might have to think about i think a lot of people find uh, find it increasingly difficult to to enter that contemplative um space for a sustained period um, They, they might you know they and and I think the other side of it which is perhaps um, a question that doesn't doesn't just concern us in South Africa but concerns um, readers and writers and publishers everywhere um is the possibility that people are finding satisfaction of the storytelling need elsewhere and that's mainly on television and in high, you know high quality drama and so mm. on which a lot of people are are, are watching.
0: Unfortunately, Ivan, we have to leave you because, David, you have literally one minute left before we close off the show. And this is how fast it goes to close us off, to tell us maybe what you're reading, but also to tell us uh, how are you looking forward into the future for yourself?
1: <laughs> well, the future at the age of 73, I'm looking at it day by day. I... I'm reading. I've just finished reading a new book by Thomas Piketty, the oh, uh, sure. the well-known economist of, of uh, equality and inequality. Um, I've just finished reading a fabulous, five hundred-page book on the last day of the the life of. Of Robespierre, which I thought was the most incredible combination of fiction and non-fiction. I mean, how did the writer know that Robespierre walked briskly across the bridge <laughs> on the day of the of the on the day of his death? Um, so, I, I those those are the kind of things that I I read. There's also a very interesting new volume of collect, collected essays that has just been brought out on on. On state capture in South Africa, the anatomy of—it's called the anatomy of state capture—that I'm that I'm looking at, and um, and I've just uh, started reading uh, Graham Greene's *The Quiet American* oh, again yes. after yeah. many many years. Um, I I love Graham Greene and I love his, and I have a lovely collection of his works. So I, that's what I'm reading.
0: David, we're going to. Leave I wanted it there. to ask
1: Ivan who his favorite, who he, which mm-hmm. Ivan Vladislavici
3: would okay, recommend Ivan, to read. Okay, you've got. Read.
0: You have to. You have to say favorite read in one second because I have to go to news. So, what's your favorite?
3: Okay. <laughs> at at the moment, yep. my favorite is what the books I'm reading.
0: No, the books you've written.
3: Uh, the books I've written, David, I can't tell you. I, I'll tell you that I, I would suggest reading the last one, which is called The Distance. And the next one, which is in the pipeline.
0: It's 10 o'clock. It's time for the news. Good morning and goodbye.